Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for coming today. If you're new or newish to our church, as Jonah said, we're uh, glad you guys are here. We are, uh, to catch you up to speed, if you are new, we are in a series right now in the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible or a phone app and want to turn there, great, you don't have to. This will all be on screen here in just a second. But it's been a summer series for us that we're wrapping up next week. So two more weeks to go, almost done. Uh, 1 Timothy is the first of two letters to uh, a figure named Timothy who lived in the first century and was kind of a protege of the Apostle Paul's. Paul's the guy who wrote half the New Testament, most of the letters we have in the New Testament. And he's writing to him about like all things uh, pastorship or pastorhood or eldership or, um, or about church. And so in a lot of ways, this is, for, this is a letter to kind of especially heed and listen to and read if you are a pastor or a pastor uh, wannabe or, tra- or in training or whatever, uh, or church planner in the future, uh, present or, so present or future. But it's also for all of us because it's about the church and it's about Jesus. It's about his love for us and for his bride, the church, and what church really is, what behavior within the church and, and community together should kind of be like. And so he's touching on a lot of things in this letter. It's very it's varied in terms of topic, uh, and yet it all revolves around the good news of Jesus and the fact, that, the fact that we're here at all, that we're saved, but that we're gathered like this as evidence of God's grace and um, the fact that he has gathered people from being stray. The church is called a gathering in the Bible, and, and so the opposite of that is, is wandering, right, or being scattered. The fact that we're here at all is just evidence that God is bringing people back from sin or from being out in the desert of being distanced from their creator, uh, and so even just the rhythm, right, of doing this every week is, uh, is a, f- a figure of grace. It's a type. It's a, a picture and a demonstration of God's goodness to us through his son. Uh, so we have two weeks left. Like I said, uh, Paul is beginning to sign off in this letter because he has a few more things to say to Timothy before he does that. Uh, really, today's passage is just a continuation of last week's. We split it up because of length and substance. But uh, let's just read it, and I'll say a few more things about this uh, kind of by way of introduction before we dive in. But today, the, the, the big, big topic anyway, these words are right from the passage, but it is flee, pursue, and take hold, 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 16. So let's read this to start. Verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. All right, so basically one long sentence it felt like there. But uh, in a lot of ways, it kind of feel, feels like he's closing this letter at that point, right? It's a, it's a wonderful way to close. He's not quite done. A few more things next week, uh, but he's, he's starting to wrap up here. A couple of asides that I think I have, we have been mentioning this throughout the summer, uh, at least uh, in passing. But I want to be clear on this because it relates a lot to today's passage. And I think it will just be a help for you guys as you continue, continue to read these letters and other parts of the New Testament in the future. Uh, But it has to do with two different interpretive dynamics uh, to the pastoral letters. Uh, The pastor-non-pastor dynamic 
and the human and divine dynamics. And so with the first one, I was kind of saying this before, but we just need to acknowledge that there is a special instruction here to pastors and future pastors. Though all Christians can still obviously heed the advice or the imperatives that are here in this context, because to quote Paul elsewhere, uh, in Christ, there really is no pastor or non-pastor. I'm actually not quoting him directly, but that's language from Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there's no distinction, right? There's no, like, good and bad Christian. Um, there's no, he says, they're male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, but there's no moral or immoral. I'd also say there's really, in Christ, there's no pastor or non-pastor. There's no distinction, really. Now, obviously, we have those distinctions for the sake of the health of the church, like in a physical level, but really in Christ, we don't. And so if that's true, then all of us can and should read this as though we are Timothy, kind of receiving this instruction, as though God is writing to us. And yet again, to flip it back around, uh, there's a special thing here, I think, for pastors and for future pastors to really heed. He's giving a charge. He says, in the presence of God, I'm charging you with something. He doesn't do that to churches. Like, if you read Paul, he doesn't say that to, like, just churches at large. He's saying this to Timothy uh, particularly. And so I'll come back to this and show you why I think this is important and how maybe this plays out specifically, at least in part, in today's passage, but I want you to have that in mind as, as we go forth today and maybe just in the future when you read these types of letters in the Bible. The other side is the human and divine, and that is uh, to say that we need to see that there is both a human principle and a divine gospel in passages like this, in the spirit of how Jesus himself is both human and divine, which is to say that there is something for us to hear and do as human Christians like Timothy, we're just like him, uh, in, in a passage like this, but there's also something for us simply to gaze at and marvel at, a gospel from God that stands apart from our works wholesale and resides solely in Christ's work for us. Uh, more also on, on that later. But let's go back with those two things in mind and said, let's go back and start with, I think, what, which is the more obvious side of and maybe accessible piece uh, to this passage, which is in the first couple of verses. And I'm going to title this or subtitle this, Flee and Fight. So a couple of things there, which actually just that alone might sound kind of, kind of contradictory, right? Like, are we running away or are we fighting? Like, what are we doing, <laughs> right? Um, but I really like that because I think it's realistic. It's just like part of the Christian life is like running away from evil. It's, um, it's, it's realizing we can't fight. We're, it's not up to us to save ourselves, right? We run away from things under, under the guise of like, Jesus saves us, we don't save ourselves. Uh, on the other side of things, we do go toe-to-toe with, um, with darkness uh, by the strength of God that he gives us. Uh, and so you kind of have uh, both things g- going on. And so we'll, we'll kind of flush that out. But let's go back to the first verse for today. First, he says he wants Timothy to flee. And I'll go back to, he says, flee these things. And to get these things, to kind of go back to last week's passage, so I'll go back to last week's to reference these things. He mentions in verse uh, 6 here, but, um, or sorry, 6 and following from last week, flee the love of money, uh, flee conflict. He said last week, flee anger, flee strife, flee quarrelsome behavior of any kind, like run away from that, flee arrogance and pride. And he also says, flee a false doctrine of works-based salvation or righteousness that that says, and this is a quote from last week, that says godliness is a means of gain. That that was a false teaching kind of in the Ephesian church. Uh, Some some Christians were saying godliness uh, will get you something. It will produce financial gain. It will earn you favor before God maybe on a a spiritual side of things. 
And Paul's saying to Timothy, you've got to squash that out. You have to, you yourself, run from that idea and then um, also teach against it. So, which he says elsewhere in, in this book. All right, so flee them while other Christians, false teachers may be in the church, while others might seem to be like holding their hands and being intimate with them, you should run from them. And, and then he says, as you flee, you're pursuing something else. So running from one thing, but towards other things. And here he lists out a few things. He says, pursue righteousness. So, so run from anger, but pursue righteousness. Run from ungodliness and conflict and pride and false doctrine. Run towards faith and love and steadfastness and, and, um, and gentleness, which is, I think is a really interesting list. This is one of those things in the New Testament that some of you may have experienced with where you're reading it and you can easily pass it over and just kind of like breeze by and say, well, it's kind of like a, just a vague list of moral qualities or something, not, not give much attention to the actual words. And so I want to go back, though, and look at them a little bit, not in too much depth, but just give a little more time and light on them to, to basically address the question, why these terms? Because they're not like direct opposites of the things that he's saying run from. These are other things, and they're not all like simple morals. They're uh, gospel qualities or characteristics of God even that we are called to, uh, to run towards. All right, so let's, let's start kind of going backwards here with the end and start with gentleness. He's saying, pursue gentleness, and I'd say, because in the gospel, Christ is gentle with you and me. He's not mad at us uh, through his death and resurrection. He, he doesn't, to quote uh, a phrase about Jesus used in the gospel of Luke, he doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't see something almost at the point of death and then give it the final blow, like he nurses it back to health. This is what Jesus is like. He is, he is a, a gentle being, a gentle savior, be, uh, the son of God and God himself. And so, um, and he lives in us. So the, the idea here, I think, is, and I'll, I'll speak to pastors and, and about pastors especially, though, again, it's, it's two sides of the coin, right? All of us as Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, can apply this, but in order to communicate God's grace correctly, pastors must be gentle because anger and contempt communicate the opposite of grace, which is the law, that there is a measure that hasn't been reached yet, and so there's anger. There's atonement that still needs to be made, and so there's anger. But, but again, in Christ, that's not God's posture towards us anymore. His anger, like we just sang, has been poured out on his son as a substitute instead. And so now we have God's slowness to anger and quickness to love, his patience towards us, and his divine gentleness. This is actually why, and this if you've been here for this series, or maybe you know this book, but gentleness is one of the key characteristics of being a pastor. Isn't that kind of interesting? Maybe not something we'd put at the top of the list if we were to make our own. I don't know, maybe you would. I don't think I would if I was making this stuff up. But gentleness is a, is a key quality. And I, it's back from chapter 3, if you remember that. We looked at this literal job description or, or characteristic list of what to look for in potential new pastors. Gentleness is right there as well. And I think this is why anger is actually disqualifying uh, for or a disqualifying attribute for pastors in ministry. They should lose their job. Not that we expect perfection for pastors in this area, because they'll never be perfect, but ongoing, contempt-filled, 
anger that it, it should, that's a disqualification because that's not God, right? We're not representing God in that moment. Not just because it's sin then, but because it communicates the wrong things about God himself, who is slow to anger and quick to love, right? Remember that idea? Isn't that amazing? God's like that. He's slow to get angry. We're fast to get angry. But God is slow to get angry and very fast to love. Um, pastors, albeit very imperfectly, should image this. All Christians, I think it's a calling, but um, pastors have a special kind of call to that, to image Jesus to their church in that way. Okay, so pursue gentleness. Pursue steadfastness, which means pursue perseverance or pursue staying in the faith and being unchanging doctrinally, which I think I was reading this this week and thinking, man, what a trait we should want in all of our lives as Christians, maybe especially for our pastors, um, because we live in a world that's changing, right? And churches that change. And uh, there, there was an article I saw online uh, last week, I think even, about um, how to process when your pastors leave the faith. And uh, it was really good. But I, I just thought, man, the fact that we're writing these things now even is so tragic. You know, that, that pastors who teach and disciple and lead people who are leaving the faith, like how do you, what do you do with that when they deconstruct, you know, and when they leave and, um, or change, you know, change their gospels. And I think that's basically what this is saying, is, is Paul saying, don't let that be you, pastor. Be steadfast in your faith. Be unchanging. Because God is unchanging, let your gospel be unchanging. Let your teaching be unchanging. Um, pursue it. Uh, albeit, again, imperfectly, pursue it nonetheless. Flee from some things, pursue. This is one of the things we should, we should be pursuing. All right? Pursue love. Uh, because it's the highest quality, the essence of God himself. And by it, we embody the gospel more than any other spiritual gift, 1 Corinthians 13 says. Um, the love of God that gave up everything on the cross that we might be forgiven. Pursue faith because faith is the opposite of working and striving for acceptance. That's why it's worthy pursuing. That's why faith's not really like a moral here. It's actually a, it's an idea. It's a concept where we're pursuing the idea that it's not by works we're saved. We're pursuing the idea that it's not by us striving, but by God striving for us. Not by us washing God's feet, but by his, him washing our feet. Not by us ascending, but him coming down. That's how we're saved. So per, this is basically the same thing as saying pursue belief, because faith is an active idea. Pursue the, the act of believing that Jesus rose from the dead every single day of your life. Pursue the act of believing he's the son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Pursue belief. Pursue godliness, very similar, of course, but as, as we've learned in this letter from chapter 3, godliness is to be in Christ, uh, to believe his spirit resides in us, that he is our godliness. It's to be like him in his sufferings for others, which is a high form of love. And then finally, pursue righteousness, which is the same as pursuing Christ because to be righteous is to live by faith as both testaments of the Bible attest to. Um, faith in the righteousness from heaven who came down when we were trying to go up with our own form of works-based purity and righteousness. So pursue the righteousness that came down. Be re pursue righteousness by being a believer and a truster in God not a worker for his favor. All right, then to build on that into, into verse 12, which kind of, yeah, kind of hinges on this idea, he adds to the idea of fleeing and pursuing 
fighting. Fight, then he adds this qualifying phrase, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight by having beliefs, we were just talking about. And, and then by taking hold of eternal life, all right? So this is what I really like in this passage, and I, I titled the whole sermon after this, because I think this is such a crux issue, is you have three things going on here. You have, we're called to run away and flee from one thing. We're called to pursue another thing. But we're called to take hold of yet another thing uh, altogether, which is eternal life. And of those three things, taking hold, I think, is the the better thing. It's the best thing because it has to do with something or someone else, right? It has less to do with our running and our chasing and more to do with an object outside of our bodies and souls that we rely on to be held up, right, from something. So all these things are good, but the better thing is, is taking hold, that, and even on that basis alone, if, like if you are comparing these terms, um, on that basis alone, taking hold would stand out. That it involves less of us than the other two. Or to put it another way, it's one thing to run away, another to pursue, yet maybe not fully catch in this life, but another thing altogether to rely on the sturdiness and trustworthiness and power and sufficiency of the concrete footing of Jesus Christ. Like, that's just, it's almost like it's apples to oranges in some way. Like, the Christian life will look like all three of these things, which I, that's why I love the passage, is it's complex and layered, and, and all these things will constitute our life on a regular basis, but they're not all created equal. Like, if you're fleeing and pursuing but not taking hold, you're toast, you know? Like, if you're taking hold, the other two will probably follow. But you have to take hold of something outside of you, which is Jesus uh, the pylon, the, the concrete footing, the rock of, of Jesus Christ. And actually, if you look in this passage, which is not uh, here, it's in the next section, but it says, eternal life belongs to the one who, quote, alone has immortality. So if Jesus alone owns immortality, then to cling to eternal life is to cling to him, right? It belongs to him. It is him. He is the resurrection and the life, he says in John 11. Um, so it's another way of rewording this, but same thing. Cling to not you. Cling to Jesus. Um, so there's lots of grace in that. I, I, I think basically Paul wants Timothy and, and the Ephesian church here to take hold not to work up from within. Uh, take hold of Jesus as, as if you were drowning in the middle of the ocean with only a life preserver in front of you. Or like the woman hemorrhaging uh, in Mark, I forget what chapter in Mark, but she's hemorrhaging and bleeding her whole life and no doctor, no amount of money, no good work could heal her and so she reaches out and touches Jesus' robe. Remember this story? And she's instantly healed. It's, it's like uh, amazing, right? Just like on face value, but especially over and against the fact that no doctor, no physician, no medicine, no money, no good work could heal her. Only the person of God, the person of Jesus Christ. It, it is our life. It is exactly our life. Exactly our gospel. Just put in like a, a physical story. So take hold of Jesus like that woman. Take hold of, G, of Jesus himself who actually as you see in this passage, I'll put it up here, verse 13. As, it's an interesting insertion here that, that he mentions this, but uh, very important. I'll come back to a couple of times before we're all said and done here today, but But I'll say for now, take hold of Jesus who, as this passage says, he made the good confession 
before Pontius Pilate. If you don't know the story, Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor and he tried Jesus before his crucifixion. Saw no guilt in him, wanted to set him free, but feared people more than God. And so he just kind of acquiesced to the mob and uh, let Jesus be crucified. But before Pontius Pilate, Jesus made the good confession. He said, I am the Messiah. I am, Pilate says, are you the king? People say you're the king. Like, is that really who you are? And, and Jesus says, well, you've said so. It's a really weird way to respond. But, well, you said it, so yeah, I guess so. But he says, but yeah, that's why I came. I came for this very reason, to attest to the truth, to what is true about us, what's true about God, because you're being lied to every day by the devil, and you have no idea which end is up. I've come to attest to the truth. Uh, we'll come back to a little bit of that. But anyway, but back to what I was saying. That's the good confession. This is what he's saying before he's crucified. And the idea there, I think, is that this is what we hold on to. The idea is that Jesus was steadfast in our place. He's the one who endured through the trial, through the arrest, through the flogging, through the false accusations, even though he's perfectly innocent, endured all the way through his excruciating death and his burial uh, right through his resurrection into, into, into life for us. And so when you see like pastors or all Christians, however you want to look at it, be stead, pursue steadfastness, this is here as an anchor for when you're not. Because you won't be. You know, I, I'm not. None of, us, none of us are every day. We're not perseverers all the time. So it's worthy to pursue, right? And I'm saying, don't think about it. Pursue it. We should be mindful of these things. Flee from some things, pursue others. But what happens when you don't? Where do you go? What do you think about? What is God like to you in that moment? It says everything about your faith in that moment. Who is, what's his posture to you? Is he angry? Is he mad at you? Or does he say, Jesus made the good confession? Jesus endured. Jesus went to the cross for you. Jesus persevered and finished his race. And this is where I think the idea of like Philippians 1.6 comes into play where it says, God will carry your faith to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That, that is, I don't know about you guys if you know that verse, but that is um, one, of, one of the most consoling verses in the entire Bible for me. That it's God who will help me and even cause me to believe until my dying breath. It's not me. I can't run. I can't pursue. I can't flee well. But God will not just assist and help. He will actually be the ultimate breath. And, and it, well, as the Bible says elsewhere, author behind my faith, author behind my salvation. And it will be him at the end who's helping me to cross and you. All right. Let me read verse 13 here again. Um, this is the charge. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until Jesus comes back, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so I put here uh, my parenthetical, but this is, I think, again, to go back to what I was saying, this is a word for pastors especially. It's a charge for pastors. We are charged to keep Paul's commandment. The commandment, by the way, is just all he's saying in, the, in this section. So it's 
kind of odd, and you wonder, well, what's a commandment? It's a singular thing, right? Not a plural. It's interesting. But the commandment is just like to keep what I'm telling you in this letter, or right in, right in this very chapter of my letter. All right, so pastors are, are charged to keep Paul's commandment to Timothy about these things unstained because at the core of the commandments is the gospel. And, and here again is something that I know I just said it here, but something I know that might be a bit strange to hear, but it's important, and it goes back to the dynamic thing I was talking about to start the sermon, and that is this, this part here especially, and even this whole section, is written more to pastors than non-pastors. So if you're not a pastor in the room and you have no plan to be, um, it actually should change a little bit how you read this. Not entirely and not as though you can't put yourself in the place of Timothy. It's very nuanced. So please hear the dynamic here, not the either or black and white light switch thing. You're, he, hear both. But also hear this side because it's not a natural thing to do when you pick up this part of this letter like in the Bible. You're, you're going to tend to read yourself into things as you kind of should, but maybe a little bit more than you should sometimes too, all right? So, but here's why that's important. The reason why this is important for pastors and bond pastors to see is the same reason why Jesus before Pilate was mentioned before. And that is, so we see the principle of another keeping the imperatives for us rather than them being hoisted upon our shoulders alone. All right? Now, we could look at any of these traits in this section today through this lens, but take the issue of steadfastness in particular. When a pastor is steadfast in front of his church, when he perseveres, doesn't change, is steady, doesn't change his doctrine, submits to the Bible, but who is steadfast in faith, steadfast in front of the church, the, the, the idea that Someone else does something for me is held out for our fresh consideration, which is a gospel idea, right? The core of our faith is someone else did something for us, uh, namely God. But when a pastor does something like this, even imperfectly, and it'll always be imperfect, um, it's, it is a small demonstration of that idea. That's why Timothy's getting the fresh charge here, um, the, the idea that someone else does something for me is held out rather than do this perfectly, church, and then you will live, which is an Old Testament law idea that's been abrogated. So, because again, in Christ, for all of us, pastor and non-pastor, we have the ultimate pastor in Jesus who was steadfast before Pilate unto death for us, who fought the good fight for us, who was gentle for us, not as a moral example, but as a substitute and as a fighter and as a warrior, and as a king, and as a dyer, ultimately, for us. This is why I think Paul, in the letter, um, says to pastors, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Not just what you teach, but watch your life. All of you should do this as Christians, but if you're a pastor, watch your life, because your life communicates the grace of God as well, not just your words. So again, pastors, and I put a couple things up here, but again, so it's kind of layered, right? It's like when the church is seeing pastors be gentle or loving or steadfast, they're seeing a picture of Jesus being that for all of us. It's kind of like three things going on here at once. But for all of us here, and, and this, again, uh, and please all of you, pray for us and forgive us for our imperfection in this. Uh, pray for us. But for us pastors, do these things well in front of the church so Christ might be embodied 
I think that's the idea. But not just him, the idea that he does something for us. So that as we all strive to be gentle, to bring that one in, as we all strive to be gentle and fail, it's the gentleness of the pastors or others, maybe other peers or friends, that reminds us that it's Jesus' gentleness that matters most. It's his love. It's his steadfastness. It's his godliness. It's his righteousness. It's his faithfulness that, that matters in the end. I'll come back to that, um, but I want to just kind of submit this. I know this is probably new for, I'm guessing, the, some of you at least, maybe even the majority of you, uh, to hear that. But, but again, this is why we need the church. If you don't have a community led by pastors who are, um, what's the word? <laughs> I was going to say trustworthy, but we're not trustworthy. Um, but, but just biblical, uh, just, just pastors who love the church, right, and love each other, and um, and, and who submit to the Bible's authority and who preach the gospel. Like, and just, not even that, just even like knowing each, if we don't have friendship in the church, if we can't look at someone else and say, I'm falling on my face with this steadfastness thing, but that person over there is really doing it well and saying, I'm in covenant relationship with their part of the same body. And so it's in one sense, like if the arm is doing it and the foot's not, that's enough, that's okay. You know, it's kind of like saying the same thing as saying if Jesus is doing it and I'm not, that's okay. You know, if, if Brian's gentle and I'm not, I look at Brian's gentleness and I'm saying, that's, that's in one sense, I share in that. You know, it's, it's kind of saying, it's, does that make sense? This is really kind of complex, I realize, but it, it, it's really good news. We're not hoisting all of this equally in all of our shoulders saying, do this and then you will live. We're saying, it's, it's in one sense, worthy of all of our consideration for sure as Christians, but especially for pastors to have this heavy calling and, and to say, watch your life and your doctrine and maybe, maybe someday uh, someone in the church will look at your steadfastness when they're not pers- persevering that well and saying, it's all right. There are, that's a reminder to me that my salvation is objective to me. That what happens truly, what matters happens outside of me, not inside. That's what truly matters is what happens outside moving into me rather than from without Okay, let's move on to this. I think kind of, this kind of flows from that a little bit, so we'll unpack it. But the next piece is look and live. Um, let me read verses 15 again and following. Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. All right, so a lot of you know uh, this, but names and descriptions in the Bible mean a lot theologically, both for human beings and for God. All of it matters. Every word of this, um, there's no accident here. And we ask the question, where is their theology in this? I think a couple of things stand out. The first are, are these words, which is the truth that Jesus is not just a sovereign or a king. He's the only one. And He doesn't just have immortality. He alone has eternal life in his hands. He he alone has non-death, the promise of non-death. He alone has it. He's not one of a pantheon of gods. He is the only one. And so, um, again, when we ask, like, what truth does that convey, it's not just that Christianity is the only true religion, though that's true. Christianity, according to this, is the only truth. Jesus is the only truth, not one of many. Uh, he is the only king, the only 
righteous one, the only savior, the only one of immortality and the promise that death is not the end, right? Right down the list. It's not just that though. The, the, the truth here is that we are not kings, right? He alone has life, meaning we don't. Eternal life is his to give, not ours to earn or to work up from within ourselves. This, this reminded me of this uh, often referenced idea in the Bible. Uh, this is uh, towards the end of the Bible, but it says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's actually what the, um, the saints in heaven are singing, I believe. Uh, it's heard from heaven. It's part of like the song we'll sing forever is the idea that we didn't save ourselves. Like we think, oh, we're done with that as Christians. No, you're never done with that. We're never done with the gospel. We'll be singing it forever, like because it's such, and it's an amazing, it's the best idea ever. It glorifies him more and gives us more happiness and peace. It gets us out of ourselves more and, and helps us to be a creature again and not try to supplant the creator. I mean, it, it is where happiness truly is. And so we'll sing this. It'll be part of the song. But salvation is God's possession. So it, that means it's his to give, not ours to earn or produce. So to him alone be honor and dominion for these things, not to us. The second piece is a little bit harder to see, but it has to do with the word unapproachable and the phrase no one has, has ever seen. So God dwells in unapproachable light, not just light, unapproachable light. And then add to this the fact that no one can see God. And what I like about this is, is all of a sudden we don't just have a description of his awesome power, we have bad news right? Bad news. And it's really interesting this is written to a Christian in the first century in this side of the cross because um, we kind of have the answer to this. I'm going to walk through it anyway. We kind of have the resolution and answer, but he holds out the tension again saying, remember where you've come from, Timothy. Remember that this was true, even though it's not really anymore through Christ. Um, but let's, let, me, let me back up and kind of walk through it. But I, I do want to say this. It's kind of an aside. Um, this obviously implies separation, right? But this is a really helpful thing when you study theology and read the Bible, and that is God's power without his gospel is bad news for sinners. God's power without his gospel is bad news for sinners. Like it's, even though it might be awesome and amazing uh, to picture God on his throne and to understand his glory and, and his divine light and to kind of think about that and unpack that, Actually, without Jesus, it's terrifying, terrifying, because no one can, can get close. We, we have to stand a billion miles away, or we'll get the worst sunburn ever, like we'll just die. Uh, and and not, not just that, but no, he's invisible, right? Um, I, I was, my family and I were in the Southwest. We were taking a vacation to some of the parks down there, like uh, Grand Canyon and Zion and Las Vegas, Hoover Dam, we saw all that stuff. It was all bucket list stuff for us. But um, we went, we realized like day one that, oh, we went in August. <laughs> what are we doing? You know, it was like 105 every day, pretty much everywhere we went, except the Grand Canyon, which was like a, a cool 90. So, but everything else was just terrible. I mean, it was awesome, but it was terrible uh, kind of thing. So we <laughs> were actually going to go to Death Valley too, but we said, nope, uh, not going to do that. But um, we, we canceled that one. But, so, but it, when we were down there, the heat just kept us away from stuff. Like there, there are a couple of times where we said we'd like, to, we'd like to hike further, 
but no way, we're gonna die, you know? We'd like to go to Death Valley, but what are we thinking, you know? We'd like to play that mini golf course, but there's no shade, and we will die, you know? (laughs) Like, literally. So we just had to, like, there's something we wanted to do, but we couldn't approach it, right? The the, the Old Testament does this as well. Uh, The Old Testament basically is the story of God saying, come close, but stay away, both at the same time. Come close, but stay behind that wall. Stay behind that veil. Don't get close or you'll die. Only one person can approach me in the Holy of Holies but once a year. And if he does the wrong thing, he'll perish. I mean, it's this, it's this, and part of the theology in that, again, is not just to show God's power, but to show how it's, it's actually bad news for sinners. It's, it's power over and against ours, right? It's a, it's a type of theological juxtaposition that said that, sends a message that points us ahead in the story for a type of resol- gospel resolution. So that the, uh, the questions then that it begs is, how are we able to approach if he's unapproachable? How is, how is he able to get to us without blinding or burning us to death? How are we able to see him if he is invisible? These are great questions that this passage, if you're just reading this alone, it would beg right? Like if this is the only thing you had in the Bible, you'd be left with bad news. Um, but this is why, and I'll say a couple of things here, this is why Jesus is the anchor. This is why Jesus, not just Jesus, Jesus before Pilate is the anchor. His passion narrative, his sufferings is the anchor, is the resolution to these types of like problems, right? In fact, this question could be answered with a question. Like, What if the unapproachable light came down to earth, born into darkness, to dwell among us, to quote John 1.14? What if God became a man like us? What if that happened? What, What if Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and became Jesus of Nazareth and then spoke these words in John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I love that exchange there where Jesus is like basically saying, guys, what are we talking about? Why is this even a question? Why is the question, show me God, even still in existence? I'm here. And when you look at me, you see your creator. See, the the resolution's beginning to happen, right? The unapproachable God is becoming approachable. The invisible God is becoming very visible. And not just that, he's touching lepers and those who are sick and poor and distraught and he's making them well. He's going into funerals and speaking to corpses, get up, and they do. He's saying to people who are, who are demonized, you know, come out and the demons, right? This is the authority he has. It's not just like a, this happens, it's happening for our benefit. Or what if the same God uh, that who said to Moses in the Old Testament, man shall not see me and live, but you can see my back as I pass by you after I cover your face. What if he said later in the story that through Christ, we are able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus? That's different, right? And this, of course, is all true, but th- these are the types of questions that answer the former questions. And so the answer to the question of how we will one day and today be reunited with God is Jesus. Not as though Jesus is the teacher who tells us how, he actually is the answer himself, his body. His body that was shredded, his body that was cut open and splintered 
and crowned with the crown of thorns and spit on. Um, in fact, his face was covered too. I put that here. The answer is Jesus. When his face was covered, as he was dragged off to his crucifixion, when he, the light, took on the darkness of the cross to save us from our sins and open up a way for sinners to actually do approaching, to actually approach God, to approach, as Hebrews 4.16 says, the, the throne of grace. So really what you have in this passage is you have problems and resolution, just like any type of maybe more explicit gospel passage might present in the, in the New Testament. It's not as explicit here, but it's, it is so there. You have the problem of unapproachableness. You have him who made the good confession before Pilate on his way to the crucifixion, being a perseverer in our place, enduring the cross, bearing the wrath of God, paying our debts, all in love for us, even though it was the, the, the greatest of injustices of all time, completely innocent. He, he becomes guilty for us, even though he's not. Becomes a criminal, though he's not. That's the, the crux is that he stands in between the unapproachableness and the approachableness, right? Like it's the throne of grace, right? Not the throne of the law, not the throne of the Ten Commandments, not the throne of you. It's the throne and doing. It's the throne of belief. It's the throne of grace. It's the throne of one-way love. That's the, that's the throne that we approach, and this is where grace is ultimately manifested. This is what God came into the world to do is he came to become like you, to die for you, right? Other religions say, become like God, and you'll be saved. Become like his characteristics, and then you'll be saved. Uh, climb the ladder to heaven. Christianity says the opposite. Christianity says God became like you to die for you. So rest easy, weary sinner. It's a very different message. In fact, it's the opposite message. We could not become like him, and that was never the plan anyway. So he had to become like us, and he willingly did, to die for you and, and die for me. So, so in summary, um, I would say, to walk you back through the layers of this, it's one thing for a Christian to pursue steadfastness and love, and that's a good thing. It's another thing for a pastor to do it as a Christ figure, which is a very good thing. It's yet another thing for Jesus himself to do it for us and in our place, to be the essence of love, to endure the cross, to show us gentleness and not anger. For it's in his shadow and the cross's shadow that we live and breathe and have our being. And it's there, and to, to quote from today's passage in verse 13, it's there that God gives life to all things. And really that's what this passage is about. Uh, it's about a lot of things, but the most important part of it is when it essentially says to us that Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. And if we are to take hold of one thing, like if there's something to really, to again use Paul's language, but to... to grab onto and to take hold, it's that. It's him. It's, it's him there. The one who made the good confession before Pilate on his, at his trial, though he had a way of escape, he didn't take it. Um, he endured for you and me. He died in our place as a substitute. One-way love. Um, and and I, I think what God calls out to us in this passage is he says, Christians, take hold of me. Take hold of my son. Take hold of the fact that he persevered through hell for you. Uh, kind of as you, in a sense. So you've already made it through. You're already there. You're already in heaven. You're already 
with God. We already approach the throne of grace. There's no more separation. He already lives with, I mean, all these like finality statements in the Bible. It's like, it's done, he says, right? So the Bible like talks about our life. It talks about it in those same terms. Like it's already done. We're already with him. We can see the invisible. We can approach the unapproachable. And we have that through the shed blood of Jesus. Not based on how well you think you've done today. Not based on your moral checklist. Not based on how well you think you've resisted sin or fleed from the love of money. Not based on any of that, but simply and alone based on him right there. That's it. And to add to him is sin. To add to him is changeableness doctrinally. It's the opposite of steadfastness. And so as your pastors, we we try to exude this and and do this as best as we can, though we fail sometimes. But, But all of us are called to this. Pursue the unchanging God and his unchanging gospel. Rest in him. Don't add to it. Believe in him. And you'll be saved because he died that you and I might live. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much, uh, God, for this passage. Thank you for this book. Um, God, we pray for uh, the pastors of our church, God, for help to lead. We pray for all of us, God, here who um, hail Christ as king and believe in his bloody death and triumphant resurrection and who are Christians through it, that you would help us to flee, uh, to become new by the Spirit and by the grace of God to pursue uh, righteousness and joy and peace and love. these things that we, we actually can now because you live within us and we have them. We have the mind of Christ as Philippians 2, 2 5 uh, starts out as. And so, um, and yet, all the more help us to take hold of you. Um, we, we believe, we have taken hold, many of us in the room, and yet, like the centurion before you, Jesus, we pray that you would help our unbelief, help our untrust, help our, just help us. There's, there's nothing in the world that can help us uh, except you. Uh, so heal us of our diseases, especially our sin. Uh, make us new and help us to have joy in the gospel today and um, to leave here at peace, um, knowing that you made the good confession in our place uh, and for us. In Christ we pray, amen.